Hello and welcome back to another episode of Clear for Takeoff. I'm your host, Gavin Rice, and I want to share what I've learned in aviation both on the job, off the job, and what I've encountered everywhere in between. Wow, it has been busy. As I've, I've told in the past, I mean, December, I knew the outlook of December was going to be incredibly busy, and it sure has with all these back-to-back trips and flying a ton. Uh, the, the total block hours originally scheduled for December, I think was going to be 95, but because a couple of flights have, have underblocked, meaning that we've made it a little earlier or just spent a little less time than originally scheduled out uh, off the gate, I think that's come closer to uh, 90 hours. But still, a lot of flying, a lot of days. Uh, it's just been so busy. And because of that, I mean, things are, are bound to happen. Uh, interesting things. I mean, I've added a new destination to my logbook, that being Cancun. Unfortunately, it was a, a quick turn out of there, out of Raleigh. So we just went Raleigh, Cancun, Cancun back to Raleigh. But it was still really exciting because it's a, a new destination for me. And crossing the, the Gulf of Mexico introduce some new procedures in terms of, of communicating with air traffic control. It's it's no longer controlled by a United States air traffic controller. You know, we were talking to Cuba and then we were talking to uh, to Mexico at that point. So it was it was really cool. Just a really fun, really fun place to go. Unfortunately there were there are quite a few buildups of, of clouds. So it wasn't that stereotypical Caribbean, you know, Gulf of Mexico turquoise water that you normally see when, especially when the sun's shining, but it was still really neat. Again, a new destination, uh, new, new things to see, new, new things to hear as well over the frequency. What was really interesting too is my Spanish is, is not good at all. Uh, I did do an exchange program in high school where I, I lived in Spain for three months. And so by the end of that, I, st- I started picking up Spanish a bit. I, you know, I, I could get around, uh, but it's been so long that I'm pretty rusty at it. But on frequency, you know, we're, we're the, the international language of aviation is English. And so anytime, uh, you know, two countries are communicating with each other that, that you know, it's, it's whoever's not native tongue. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's English is the spoken language. But within a country, if it's an aircraft that's based in that country, they can communicate in their own language. So, you know, you'll have us. Uh, I think there was an American Airlines in front of us. I mean, there's a few airlines where, okay, English is spoken. And then all of a sudden you'd, you'd hear a, a just pick up Aeromexico, you know, Aeromexico. Uh, and whatever the the rest of the call sign was, and all of a sudden they're speaking in Spanish, and it's really fast. Uh, and that's one thing about Spanish for those of you who do speak it, or, or at least know this about Spanish, is that within the culture, I mean, they're they're different. Each country is going to be a little bit different, um, but for the most part, it's pretty safe to say that, holy smokes, I mean, the Spanish language is spoken incredibly fast, uh, and that's just that's just how it is. And so it, the same thing, I mean, you combine that with the fact that speaking on comms on the radio is also really fast and so it's it's crazy i was trying to pick up a couple things uh, and by the time we actually departed out of cancun you know the, the couple of aircraft in front of us i was hearing the the instruction that air traffic control was giving them and i i could anticipate that they were going to call us next because i was like okay that's the aircraft right in front of us that makes sense and then sure enough they called us for to follow this aircraft and go up and hold short of the runway and get ready for departure yada yada so it was it was just it was really fun it was really unique and, and i'm very excited to to frequent more of those destinations which which will be coming uh, sometime next year once i switch to the airbus the, the 320 it's gonna be very exciting there's gonna be a lot of uh, new destinations that will be entered in my logbook so really exciting 
But anyway, yeah, really busy uh, last few weeks. Uh, what was that last episode? We had Kellen on the show. That was really awesome. He got to, to talk about the 737. That was really neat. And so between then and now, oh my gosh, so much has happened uh, that I, I figured I'd, I'd just highlight one really interesting thing that did happen. And I don't know if you've ever had to experience getting on the plane, you know, boarding. They, they call your, your group number or your, your letter and you, you're all set to go on your, on your journey and then... You're sitting down, and then all of a sudden, you have to deplane. The captain comes over the the intercom, says, "Hey, unfortunately, we got to deplane." So that happened. Um, it's only happened once to me before, as a little kid. I remember back when my family we used to live in uh, on the west coast, and so we would uh, during the the summers and sometimes at Christmas we would fly to the east coast to visit family. And I do remember very vaguely that there was a situation where they were trying to figure out a problem and all of a sudden we saw this maintenance guy like walk up and down the aisle with this big panel in his hand and we're all thinking oh that's not good (laughs) you know if you you see an airplane part that's being walked up and down the aisle that that can't be good and sure enough we ended up getting deplaned our flight was delayed they they got a new plane for us and we were on our way so that's kind of what happened. Uh, it finally happened to me while operating a flight. Essentially what happened is we we got to the plane. It was, it was the first leg, uh, the, the first leg of the first day. And that's the funny thing about when things happen is it's either the first leg of the first day or the last leg of the last day. That's just coincidentally, that's just, you know, when, when things are just starting out or when you're trying to get home, that's when things happen. <laughs> it's just... I don't know, some sort of karma or something. But anyway, we, we, we got to the plane and we, we started it up. Uh, the, the captain was going to fly that leg. And so I, I pretty much got my stuff inside. And then I was, I was ready to head outside to do the walk around, the pre-flight walk around. And I noticed on the ICAS, which is the, the middle screen on the flight deck, which stands for Engine Indicating Crew Alert System. Uh, it's essentially the screen that, that shows us any of the engine information, and then for us on the Embraer, uh, it, the crew alerting system, what that does is when any system goes awry, if, if anything's abnormal, it's going to show up on the screen. And I noticed one little thing on there that said IRS to fail. I thought, hmm, that's a first for me. I haven't seen that one before. And so the captain tried to uh, just essentially restart the plane, uh, give it a reboot, because that's the funny thing about some of these aircraft, particularly the Embraers and, and the, the Airbuses that are so heavily automated, it's essentially a flying computer. And anytime you have a glitch on your computer, what do you do? You restart it. And a lot of times that, that clears the fault message or, or whatever that's, that's going on. And so he tried that. At, at this point, I was doing my walk around. I come back. Didn't seem like it was successful because once uh, he booted it back up, we still got that message of IRS to fail. So that brings me to what is an IRS? Well, it stands for the Internal Reference System. And since the message was IRS uh, fail or IRS to fail, uh, that means uh, it's the second one. There's two of them. Uh, and if you haven't figured this out already, there is so much redundancy built into aircraft systems. There, there's a backup for the backups backup. I mean, the, there's so many systems 
in place so that if something fails, well, we've got a backup. So that's why we have two IRSs. But what is the IRS? So the Internal Reference System, it's a navigational aid. Essentially what it is, meaning that it's internal, it doesn't rely on any outside information to figure out where the aircraft is. So how does it do that? Well, without diving too crazy into the science behind it, essentially what it is is a lot of these little sensors, uh, specifically accelerometer sensors. So before every flight, it gets recalibrated and cross-references with a GPS coordinate to say that, okay, beginning on this day at this time, this aircraft is positioned at exactly these coordinates. So it knows. As soon as the aircraft pushes back from the gate, it will sense that acceleration, in this case backwards, away from the gate and in a specific direction. And it will know that based on the acceleration and how long the acceleration lasted, and then once the acceleration stopped, it will be able to, it can calculate exactly where you are. And it's, it's pretty amazing. Again, that's all internal. It doesn't rely on outside information. The only time it, it, it calibrates with outside information is, is at the, the beginning of the flight to calibrate, to make sure it knows where it is. And that is in place to uh, back up and also increase the accuracy of the GPS, which GPS, if you didn't know, is the, the global positioning system. It's the same kind of thing you got on your phone, on Google Maps or Waze apps or Apple Maps or whatever you use in order to get from point A to point B, because the days of using a road atlas are, are far in the past. Uh, and so it's, it's the same type of technology with GPS, but the IRS is an additional piece of navigational equipment that will, again, help increase the accuracy of the GPS because the, the flight management system will take information from all different kinds of navigational aids and it will be able to compute a more precise uh, location that the aircraft is located. It, I mean, it's so precise that the, the entire size of the aircraft, it's, it's pretty big, right? And the accuracy of your location will be smaller than that of the aircraft. I mean, it'll, it can be down to about three feet of accuracy. It's, it's pretty incredible how these, these navigational systems work. So anyway, that's, that's the IRS, the Internal Reference System. Uh, again, just a bunch of accelerometers that, that are able to sense accelerations and figure out where the aircraft is located. So we do need this. Uh, it's it's a, an important navigational uh, equipment. And when one of them has failed, that's that's no good. Uh, if this had, this failure message had happened in the air, uh, again, because of redundancy, it's no big deal. You know, if we're in the air, we would have run the QRH, the quick, uh, the quick reference handbook which is essentially just a book of all of our different procedures for abnormal situations like this. And we'd go through it, we'd, we'd go to the page that says IRS fail, we'd run it, and I can't remember off the top of my head which that one does, but uh, it, it's most likely in that situation, rely on other navigational equipment and divert or do something, you know, <laughs> maybe don't continue on to your destination or something like that, or, or depending on the type of approaches that are offered at, at your destination. Uh, because an IRS is really important for uh, a specific type of approach called RNP, which is Required Navigation Performance. It's a type of a GPS approach that is, again, very precise, and it relies on the precision of GPS and the IRS to make it even more precise so that we can get in to an airport um, during... Uh, very low visibility conditions, and also the, these RNP approaches have these curved legs. So normally, every 
every flight plan and, and most approaches will have just these straight paths. Uh, and if it needs to turn, it'll just be kind of an angled turn. It'll still be all these straight legs. But RMP allows us to do fly these curved legs. It's, it's pretty wild. It's pretty cool. But anyway, with, with the IRS fail, if that happened in flight, we'd run the procedure and, and uh, you know, we'd, we'd get to the ground. And we have all these backup, uh, backup navigational aids as well. But luckily, this, this was on the ground. Uh, this was during, uh, you know, when we first powered up the aircraft. So we tried to, to uh, troubleshoot the malfunction ourselves. Didn't work. The, the captain and I opted, well, let's see if maintenance can come and fix it while we still continue the boarding process. Because hopefully, you know, if they come out, they're able to fix the component, then we're all boarded up and ready to go. And we can get out of here. So it's it's sometimes it's a tough call because... You want to believe that the situation can get resolved, and so in order to keep the operation going and, and potentially even get it on time, that we can opt to board all the passengers, and so once maintenance is done, boom, we can be out of there. So maintenance came, and they took a look at it, and they were up in the, the forward avionics bay, which is a, a compartment be, um, right near the, the nose wheel, kind of underneath the flight deck. It was kind of cool. We could hear them knocking around down there as they're moving panels around. And they were, they were trying to troubleshoot the situation. And unfortunately, the, the IRS fail was due to an MAU failure, a modular avionics unit, essentially just a, a computer not not a chip, a little bit bigger than that, but a computer component was just not working. Who knows if it was some sort of short circuit or if maybe moisture got in there. I mean, you know how computers can be. If, if one tiny thing is wrong, it's hard to troubleshoot it until you open up the entire board and figure out what circuit's wrong, if there's a capacitor uh, that, that's, that's out or, you know, something. It could be a, a plethora of different things and they don't have time to try and pinpoint that situation. You know, in that kind of uh, situation, they would just remove that whole unit, replace a new one, and then send that off to the factory, and then it would get fixed at the factory. So normally, that's that's what would happen. Unfortunately, this specific MAU, the, the avionics unit, was not in stock. Maintenance did not have it, so this meant that there was really no fix at this moment until they got the new part in. And there was no way they were going to get the new part in in a decent amount of time, uh, or, or a reasonable amount of time, I should say, in order to get this flight out. So unfortunately, we had to make the announcement that, well, folks, uh, from the flight deck, unfortunately, we've got maintenance on board. They're trying to troubleshoot the system. It's not looking like it's going to work. So we are going to have to deplane, uh, go back up into the terminal. We'll get you guys on your way to your destination. Sorry for the inconvenience. No, it's it's really tough. It's one of the harder things for us to do to make that announcement because people are eager to get to their destination, right? They've just boarded up. They're all ready to go. Maybe they've made a phone call or texted, hey, we're about to go. You know, we're underway here shortly. I'll meet you at the airport. And then all of a sudden this happens. And there's, there's a, a level of uncertainty too, where as a passenger, you're like, okay, uh, does, does this mean that's canceled? You know, what does this mean? There were, there were a lot of questions. You could just, you could, you could sense how uneasy people were as soon as this happened. And what, what was even more painful is that this was, uh, the, again, the first flight of the first day of this trip. And it was just beautiful weather too. So it wasn't one of those things where, 
oh, okay, I mean, maybe if there's a lot of weather or other things going on uh, that, that's congested, uh, the, the, the airports are, are really congested. You know, there, there's all these different things that, that could go wrong that would lead to delays and cancellations, but something like this, a maintenance issue on a crystal clear blue day is just, it's painful because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's just easy to go out and fly. So anyway, we, unfortunately, they didn't have the, the, the component in order to, to replace the broken IRS. And so we deplaned and we're just waiting. The captain and I just kind of stayed at the plane, just waiting to figure out, you know, if they were going to get another aircraft for us or what was going to happen with the rest of the trip. They did find another tail for us. So when all this happened, I want to say about an hour to an hour and a half later, we had a new aircraft, which all things considered is not too bad because, you know, for operations to have another tail to give us in order to get these people to their destination and to work it with the same crew and everything. I mean, that's that's actually pretty amazing because in some situations, again, if it was irregular operations with crazy weather or something, I mean, the, the odds of being able to get another aircraft and complete this flight, it, it would be a little bit lower uh, given that kind of situation. But they had another tail for us. So we made the trek all the way over to a different gate, got the, uh, the aircraft, and that one was all good to go, and we made our way. Uh, I think we were going, th this was in Boston, by the way, and I think we were going to Raleigh, North Carolina, I want to say. Sounds about right. <laughs> Again, so many places I've been the last few days, it's all, it all kind of blurs together where I'm going. But anyway, that's, that's the interesting thing that happened with the, the IRS, the internal reference system. That failed, and we uh, we weren't able to take that plane. I'm sure since then, they've they've shipped off the the broken uh, modular avionics unit, gotten replaced with a new one, and, and all as well. And that that's the really cool thing about these these aircraft is that even if a system fails like that, because it's a modular avionics unit, meaning that it can be just removed and replaced, it's it's like this giant computer with all these components that if one little component's out, you can just normally replace it with another. Again, it just so happened that this unit they did not have in stock, so they were not able to get us a new part to get us on our way. But uh, you know, that aircraft will be back in service in no time. I mean, it's, it's a grand scheme of things, a, a fairly minor issue. So that's the IRS, and I figured for the rest of this episode, I could kind of talk about some different navigational aids. So now that you know that, okay, the IRS, the Internal Reference System, again, it's it's entirely internalized, and it figures out your location based on sensors, these accelerometer sensors, so it's pretty neat. And like I said, this augments our GPS, a global positioning system, and will improve the accuracy so much. I mean, it, like I said, down to three feet or sometimes even less with the accuracy. It's, it's impressive. And it's really important because you think of, you know, the, the type of airports that we fly into and the certain weather conditions that we can and encounter. It's so important to have this level of accuracy. So what if the IRS fails? You know, well, okay, we still have GPS uh, and global positioning system is pretty straightforward. It's, it's a satellite-based navigation. And what it is, is our receivers on board will take information packets from a bunch of satellites overhead. The, the total GPS uh, is, the global positioning system, I should say, is the, the US version of a, a GNSS, a, a global navigation system. 
and you know different countries there's a let's see well there's there's different groups i should say so the u.s has the united states has their own which is again called the gps and we will um essentially sell off usage to other countries as well and then there's a european one i forget the name of that one uh loran or something i can't, I can't remember off the top of my head there's, there's different names for essentially the same thing but a, a different country I believe Russia has their own, and I believe China has their own. Don't quote me on that. Uh, but I do definitely know that there is a, a European version of it as well. Again, it's all the same thing. Essentially what it does is the aircraft has a receiver, and it takes signals from all these satellites in order to essentially triangulate its position. So within the GPS system, I believe there's at least 24 satellites that are in orbit. So at any time, we're always going to have at least a good eight or so in view at any time. So anywhere we are, uh, we're always going to get that reception, which is pretty neat. So it again, it triangulates the the based on um, essentially the signal the that we receive is sent, and it has a little timestamp on it. So when the satellite is sending out all these signals, it has a timestamp of when the signal was uh, sent. And then our receiver is able to figure out how long it took to get from the satellite to the receiver. And so based on that, you're just looking at the, the, the basic formula of distance equals rate times time in order to figure out, okay, the distance, right? So the, the rate it took, it's, it's always at the speed of light, the signal. And then, you know, how, how long that took, you know, boom, you're going to get a distance. You're going to get a, a singular, uh, a one-dimension uh, distance, but now when you incorporate more of them, you will eventually get a three-dimensional location in space, which is really cool. It's really awesome how that works. So that's GPS, and like I said, the IRS, the Internal Reference System, will help to augment, uh, increase the accuracy. And how that works is our our flight management system, the flight management computer, is is taking inputs mostly from GPS, also from the IRS, and then if those fail, we do have some other systems as well. So the, the flight management system takes in that information, and that's how when we plug in our flight plan, we're able to plug in all these fixes and all these airways, and the aircraft will fly that route given all of that information, the, the GPS coordinates, and then, again, the accuracy will be increased by the IRS. Again, pretty, pretty amazing how it works. So what if GPS goes out? What if we had some massive solar flare or something that knocked out all the satellites? So GPS would go down, right? What's in place? Well, we still have IRS, the internal reference system. So at least that will stay somewhat accurate. But the longer you are without GPS, the less accurate the IRS will get. Those accelerometer sensors are really good at, at determining your location, but over time, the accuracy decreases. So that's why, like I said earlier, Every time we depart, the, the sensors automatically realign uh, and so in order to, to improve the accuracy because they can drift. You know, the, the accuracy can drift off because, again, it's internal. It's entirely in, internalized, and so it, it doesn't know where it is until it's recalibrated. So over time, it, again, if we had a GPS outage over time, we would slowly lose our accuracy. So what else do we have? Well, we have a ground-based navigational aid. And the main ground-based navigational aid that we will use for en route operations is called a VOR. A VOR stands for Very High uh, Frequency, VHF, 
omnidirectional range. I know, a lot of words. But basically, VHF, referring to the, the, the high frequency, is, is the, uh, the radio frequency. And then omnidirectional range is just referring to it's, it's in any direction, and then there's a certain range to it, right? So you're kind of hopping from point A to point B. Uh, in the in the original days, in, or I should say the, the early days of, of radio navigation, you would actually go from one tower uh, or, or one radio tower to the next and kind of be doing this zigzag pattern. So a lot of the uh, the, the very early days of the, the mail routes uh, back in the, the 30s and the 40s, when these these first uh, these first planes would would start making these transcontinental flights, they wouldn't be able to fly straight. Uh, they could only do that during the daytime, but once they start started doing nighttime routes and then going into weather, they would be flying from one radio station to the next. But as technology in, improved, we were able to create uh, these these what were called Victor Airways, which are, are lines between the stations, but also we can identify other points um, on other routes by cross-referencing a different navigational aid. So we're not always flying from one uh, VOR to the next VOR. It's, it's pretty cool how all these, these routes are, are laid out. If you're ever interested what, what this kind of looks like, uh, what I'm describing, if you, if you just Googled a, a high end route navigational chart, if you just Googled that, it'll, it'll pop up. You'll, you'll see that. Uh, maybe type in like FAA high end route uh, chart, something like that. And you, you'll get uh, just a, a pretty pretty mixed up looking picture of all these different lines connected by a couple of circles. And again, those are those VORs. So how does the VOR work? Well, again, it's it's this uh, very high frequency uh, that, that is emitted from the station. And on the aircraft, we can, uh, the system will determine where we are located in relationship to the VOR. So the VOR emits technically uh, an infinite number of, of these signals. It's essentially just a, an omnidirectional signal, right? It's going all around, but we can identify which side of the station we are on. And we reference that using the cardinal direction. So if you're on the north side of the station, north in terms of, of a magnetic direction would be 360, 360 degrees. So if you're directly north of the station, that would be 360 degrees, so the 360 radial. So we determine what side of the VOR we are on based on the cardinal uh, relativity to the station and we give it a, a radial coordinate. So if you're south of the station, you're on the 180 radial, you know, 180 degrees. If you're west, that'd be the 270 radial, 270 degrees, so on and so forth, you get the idea. So the, the aircraft receiver is able to determine based on two, there's actually two variable signals. There's one uh, that constantly uh, is picking up, um, you know, based on the station, and then there's a variable signal that once that is uh, reflected with the other signal, it's always going to be different at whatever location you are in relationship to the VOR. So any location you're at is always going to be slightly different with the variance of the the VHF signal, and that's how the the equipment on board the aircraft is able to determine where we are located. It's it's pretty amazing how I mean that technology was developed. I want to say in the 30s, late 20s into the 30s, and then and then it was really used. Um, it, it peaked and became very useful during World War II, and we still use that same technology today. Again, it's it's mainly a backup, uh, but we still use it today. The FAA, the, the Federal Aviation Administration, has actually 
decommissioned many of these VORs, but we are keeping the minimum operational network, the MON, they call it. Uh, so the minimum operational network is in place for the the reason of what if GPS goes out. We have to still be able to get uh, from one point to another and still be able to shoot an approach into an airport. So essentially how the, the MON works is that, again, if we had a complete GPS outage, if you were in the air, you'd be able to get to an airport within 100 miles of your location, and that airport would have either a, a VOR type approach or an ILS type approach, which again is another uh, ground-based navigational aid. So there are many VORs that are still being decommissioned uh, to this day, but they are gonna keep a certain number in service for the reason of a GPS outage. So that's the VOR network. It's it's pretty cool. It's again, it's an older technology, but we still use it because you know, like I said, if we had a GPS outage, our flight management computer would no longer be able to fly that route. It wouldn't be able to figure it out. So what would we do? Well, we would uh, we would switch to what we call green needles, uh, which means because normally the FMS is a, a magenta line that we are following. That again is the, the GPS coordinates uh, backed with some IRS. Uh, in order to, again, like I said, uh, improve the accuracy. So now we'd be switching to green needles, which is following the track uh, between these these VOR, the, the Victor Airways, uh, following a track along the ground. And the interesting thing about the Embraer, I'm not sure about other jets, but it will not track the VOR, the, or I should say the autopilot will not track the VOR. We'd actually have to use heading mode in order to track the correct radial. So, that would go very old school to the original instrument days where you'd have your chart out and you'd look at, okay, if we're on this this Victor Airway, what radial is that from this station? When, when do we change over to the next VOR station and what radial would that be? And you'd have to be manually plugging it in. It's it's a lot of work. Uh, so the, the FMS is so nice and we're so spoiled with that today. But I, I think a lot of us, even though we have a, a lot of experience, it'd be a very stressful situation to have a GPS outage because it's a lot of work to actually manually fly those those airways. So anyway, that's that that's the VORs, and the other type of navigational equipment we have I, I'd mentioned uh, a few minutes ago is the ILS. The ILS stands for the Instrument Landing System, and this is a navigational aid, a ground-based navigational aid, that is just for landing, uh, the approach and landing. The, the VOR is, is mostly for the en route phase, but it can also be used for approaches as well. But there are very few VOR approaches left in the country because of the, the number of uh, ILS approaches that we have and then GPS approaches. The need for a VOR approach is, again, few and far between. It goes back to that, that minimum operational network that maybe a couple airports here and there will still have a VOR approach because that airport maybe doesn't have an ILS approach. And again, if you have a total GPS outage, you still need to have some sort of approach uh, to, to get into the airport within 100 miles of wherever you are. Uh, but again, for the most part, most of those VORs are, are uh, those, those approaches, I should say, are, are gone. So the ILS, the Instrument Landing System, it works very similarly to the VOR except it's one pinpointed, uh, I guess you could say radial. But in this case, we call it a course because we're always flying to the localizer frequency. With a VOR, we could be flying away from the VOR station or we could be flying towards the VOR station. Either would work. With the localizer, well, yes, you can actually fly away from the station. 
uh, it's it's designed to track two because the the accuracy or or I should say the sensitivity increases as you get closer and closer to the station. So what it is, it's these two different signals. Uh, and going back to my my flight instructing days, I believe it's a hmm, I forget the the frequency range. I think it's 90 megahertz, and the other one is like 140 megahertz or 150 megahertz, something like that. So it's these two signals that are emitted, and the receiver on the aircraft will uh, receive that information from the signal. And if we're flying directly down the middle, we will get a, a centered needle on our, our navigational equipment on board on, on the uh, the avionics. And as soon as we are drifting off course a little bit. We're then going to be start. We're, we're going to start receiving more of the 90 megahertz, or if we drift the other way, maybe we're receiving more of the 150 megahertz. So it will tell us, okay, you're receiving more of this signal, so that means you must be deflected this way. Uh, so when we tune in the frequency, our goal is to obviously stay centered because guess what? The localizer is guiding us right smack to the center of the runway, and as we get closer and closer and closer, the sensitivity increases because the, the frequency bandwidth is getting closer and closer, right, as we get closer to that station, to the point where it is so incredibly accurate, these approaches, uh, we can actually do a, a category three approach uh, where we can essentially, I mean, it's almost zero visibility. We just need to be able to see pretty much on landing, about 50 feet above the ground, we need to just see the landing environment in sight. Uh, it's, it's pretty amazing how accurate it will get it. Uh, and we practice these approaches in the simulators, and it's, it's so eerie that you will see nothing until about 50 feet above the ground. And then, oh, there's the runway just in time to chop the power, begin the, the flare, and then touch down. It is, it is pretty wild. And that's how accurate this, this ILS system is. And again, that, that guiding us in laterally, that's called the localizer component. The other component is the glide slope. It works very similarly to the localizer. It's just flipped in the vertical plane. So again, it's these two signals that are emitted, and the aircraft receiver will will you know detect uh, how much of what frequency we're we're we're, uh, we're receiving. And if we're smack on the middle of the glide slope, we're going to be perfectly receiving uh, each of of the two frequencies, the, the 90 and the 150 megahertz. And the glide slope guides us down to the touchdown point. Uh, and, and the touchdown zone of the runway is the first 3,000 feet or the first third of the runway, depending on the runway length. And the 1,000-foot markers, these big, sometimes we call them the refrigerators, that's the 1,000-foot mark on the runway. In airliners, that's generally what we always touch down on. In general aviation, piston aircraft, uh, a lot of times we would use those, but... I mean, you can take a little Cessna 172 and land it in 500 feet or less sometimes if you really uh, perfect the short field technique. So sometimes it's fun to land right on the runway numbers or, or just on the first runway stripe. We don't usually always touch down on the 1,000-foot the markers. But in an airliner, precision landings are not something we practice. What we want to do is just touch down in the first 3,000 feet in the touchdown zone. If we can't touch down in the touchdown zone, we're going to go around and try again. Uh, because if we touch down after the touchdown zone, the the runway length is now all of a sudden so much shorter. We're running out of room. We're not going to have enough room to slow down. So the glide slope will guide us. Uh, most most cases uh, that I've that I've seen, the the glide slope transmitter is located right at the thousand foot marker. Sometimes it's offset a little bit, but most of them are right there to get you right in that touchdown zone. 
So there's the ILS. It's it's pretty amazing. Like I said, it it, it guides us in. It gets more uh, sensitive the closer we get to the runway. And so any kind of deviations, whether it's lateral or vertically, uh, you, you'll see them increase the closer and closer and closer you get to the runway. So when you can't see anything and you're waiting to see those approach lights in the landing environment, uh, it can get it can get your heart rate going. And I've I've had a couple approaches where, when you're in the clouds you have to go back to your basic instrument instinct, I guess I should say, that that you're, well, it's really not an instinct. It's something that we're taught early on, and that is to always, always, always trust your instruments because it's pretty amazing that when you're in the clouds, you can get incredibly disoriented and you just have to rely on the instruments. And you know your brain will be telling you you're turning right, you're turning left, you're going up, you're going down, and maybe you're smack on it, right? Or You'll be slightly offset, but your brain thinks you're okay, but nope, you need to correct it. And it just feels wrong. And you have to just throw your inner ear sense out the door. You just have to completely ignore it and trust those instruments. And I've had a couple approaches like that where it just, it feels very disorienting and you just have to trust the instruments and then boop, there it is. There's your runway. And it's it's pretty amazing how this, this equipment works. So that's a little bit about navigational equipment. Like I said, we had this IRS equipment, the init- uh, the internal reference system uh, failure. That was a big bummer. Uh, we had to swap planes, but now you get a little picture of, of you know maybe why we have to swap planes. You know, Because sometimes on our announcements, we're not gonna get so technical like I'm getting right now about how a system works. Because quite frankly, most people couldn't care. The one thing they care about is getting to their destination, right? So a lot of times uh, our jargon, we try to keep it very basic uh, so that it's it's not too confusing. Uh, but at the same time, we wanna be transparent, right? The, the, the last thing we wanna do is, is lie right we, we don't want to refrain from the truth when it when it comes to to making an announcement so we do we do try our best to use simple jargon and some people are, are better at it than others some people might go uh very far in depth with some kind of explanation and others might not go quite far enough so then it you know you you want to avoid any confusion because there's either confusion on the far end where we didn't get enough information captain or on the other end where oh that's too much what what's going on what's the problem right so we're always trying to find find the the sweet spot there. So that pretty much wraps up today's episode on a little bit about navigational equipment and what happens if they they go out. It's, again, everything is redundancy. There's a backup for the backup's backup. And luckily this didn't happen in flight. Uh, I'll have to, now I'm actually kind of curious. I'll have to open up the QRH, uh, the quick reference handbook, and, and see what it tells us to do in flight. I have a feeling it'll be something like you cannot do these approaches because the, the certain GPS approaches require the IRS for the, the increase in uh, or the improvement in accuracy, uh, and then it might tell you to divert. I don't know. I'll have to I'll have to read it and get back to you guys on that because it, it is interesting that there's so many things in this book. There's so many messages that can pop up on the ICAS that it's it's impossible to know all of them, and that's why we have a book for it. You know, you fly a little piston aircraft and you have all your checklists memorized because the systems are not too complex. But now you're flying a jet, oh man, there's so many things that you gotta have all these books and guides and manuals to, to guide you through it, and it's a lot of information. So, But it, it's really fun, it's really, it's really interesting. I know navigational equipment might not seem like the most interesting thing to some people, but I find it fascinating, I really do. And, and all aspects of aviation, you know, it's, it's really fun. Uh, I really do miss my instructing days 
uh, being, being a certified flight instructor, it's, it's so much fun to, to be teaching the next generation of pilots and, and to be enthusiastic about what I'm teaching. Uh, and, and for anyone learning a new subject, if the instructor or the teacher is, is enthusiastic, it definitely makes it easier to learn. So that's why I try to stay on top of my knowledge game and, and uh, stay enthusiastic about it all because, I mean, that's why I'm doing this podcast. I get to share with all of you guys uh, all the things that I encounter and, and teach a few things along the way. I'm definitely going to try and get back into general aviation, do some instructing on the side when I get a chance because I, I do really miss it. It's a lot of fun. But that wraps up this episode. I'm, I'm looking at my calendar right now and, oh boy, I mean, it's I don't know when I'm going to have time to fit in uh, an episode for next week. So I'm going to take a week, uh, maybe two. Let's see if I can fit that in. Hopefully I'll have an over. I'll bring my equipment with me on one of these trips uh, and I'll, 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 I'll uh, record an episode while I am at the hotel. But for now, leading up to Christmas, I, I'm going to take, uh, take a week off from recording just because there's a lot going on. I've, I've got this brief little window to go visit family and, uh, and then I'm right back out the door to flying. So it's, it's really busy, but things are good. Uh, I like staying busy. It, it keeps my mind preoccupied. And then the other thing too is it's if I'm home a lot, it's kind of hard to focus on things and get things done because you think, oh, I have all this time in the world when you, well, it's amazing how quickly scrolling on your phone or, or binge watching some TV, it, it uh, can kind of slip away from you. So by staying really busy like this, it, it forces me to really optimize the time that I have in these small windows that I do have. So going to take a quick uh, a week off from the podcast uh, leading up to Christmas and the new year. And with that being said, oh my gosh, I guess you won't be hearing me until next year. There you have it. Wow. 2023 comes to an end. We go to 2024. I think it's going to be a good year. I'm really excited. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Clear for Takeoff. I'll be, uh, I'll be back next year, guys. And wherever you're traveling, if you're flying, as always, fly safe. <laughs>